0: For the past several years of teaching this class, 15 in fact, um, the topic of predestination comes up quite often. And as all of you know, I tend to not want to talk about it. And usually I don't want to talk about it because it tends to derail us from whatever conversation we're having at the time. And I famously say, we're going to parking lot that. Well today is the parking lot. Um, We can't wait any longer and the reason that we're doing that is because Romans has several statements in it that a lot of people use to support their notions of how they think God either has already decided whether they're they're saved or not. And and we can call this Calvinism, we can call this um, belief in predestination, what have you. Because Romans eight has maybe one of the most famous examples of that, I've decided that instead of going right to Romans eight, yeah, we can hand these out, thanks. We're gonna start with we're just going to talk about it. We're going to deal with it right off the bat. And so <clears throat> what I've done is, and you're all getting handouts here, and for those of you who watch this online, I will try and figure out a way to post a link to this. It's a pretty hefty document. <clears throat> We're not going to go through the whole document in, in all of its detail. We are going to go through it in um, at a high level. But the point here is this. I think we have to address the topic of predestination now. Before we start reading, kind of the key verses that Paul has written about it so that we understand it when we get to it. At least we, we are prepared for it when we get there, <laughs> pre-prepared. <clears throat> so what I've got for you here, it looks like a dissertation, it kind of is, is... What I hope, if you wanna take this home and you wanna look at it in detail and and go through all of the the verses I've given you, that's great, I hope you do. It's a work in progress, as you can still see. I still have my writing on here. Uh, It's constantly undergoing a bit of evolution. But but I think um, what I wanna get at you is kind of this for today. When you deal with controversial topics in the Bible, for which a lot of people have very strong opinions and often very diverse opinions. I want to teach you a method for how to, on your own, elucidate truth and understand what the Bible is actually saying. So. So I'm going to start here with kind of a method for how I would like you to approach these controversial topics. And it's the approach we're gonna to take today. <clears throat> and it starts with this idea of fact versus assumption. And I know this is, this is not a philosophy class, it's a religious class, but I'm a scientist. Um, <clears throat> I'm probably a bit more unique in the religious community for how I approach this, because I am gonna approach it scientifically, empirically, objectively. Um, what we're not going to talk about today is what a bunch of smart people think about it. So, I don't care what John Piper thinks. I don't care what John MacArthur thinks, or Joel Osteen, or Billy Graham, or C.S. Lewis. Many of those people are very smart guys, don't get me wrong. My source of truth is going to be the Bible. So, here's what we're going to talk about today fact versus assumption. <clears throat> if a claim is explicitly made in the Bible, then we consider that claim to be true. I think most of us in this room would agree with that. I'm going to use the Bible as my sole source of truth. And um, it presupposes, of course, that you consider the Bible to be the inspired or true word of God, okay? Um, It also presupposes that you believe that anything and everything in the Bible is true. And any apparent contradictions that we come across, I'm going to say means that our assumptions are wrong, not the Bible is wrong. this approach is no different than what a scientist would do in the real world. A scientist says, <clears throat> I'm going to measure the natural phenomenon of the universe, and if the data that I collect seems to contradict my theory, guess what? The universe isn't wrong. <laughs> the universe is the universe. My theory is wrong, so I need to be the one that changes. That's the first key point here. Anyone who is going to go through this needs to be willing to change their assumptions based on the evidence, period. And if we all agree to that, we're good we can draw conclusions from fact and here's a really good part if the Bible is fact and we believe it is to be then any conclusions we draw from that can also be what we consider a fact Um, the conclusions are in fact guaranteed or certain this is what we call deductive reasoning you take the evidence you draw a conclusion if A equals 2 and B equals 1 then A plus B equals 3 that's certain we're, we know that it is true. <clears throat> we also say that any claims made outside of the Bible are not fact. So think of it too, in the scientific case, <clears throat> I measure the natural universe. Any facts or, or evidence that I collect from the natural universe, I say are true. Anything else that is not part of the universe, I cannot say with certainty whether it is true or not. This gets us to the second piece here about if a claim is not explicitly mentioned in the Bible, then it may or may not be true. We just cannot make a solid conclusion. The Bible doesn't talk about televisions or Sith Lords. (laughs) That doesn't mean that televisions and Sith Lords don't exist. We just have to evaluate the evidence for those separately. In fact, we find televisions do exist, Sith Lords don't. But the Bible doesn't speak about them, so we can't make any assumptions about that. The conclusions that you you make from assumption are not guaranteed. They're not fact. Now, again, they could be true, they may not be true, but we can't say for certain. And and this is where a lot of people get in trouble, and I think this is where I'm going today, is that when you rely on assumption or inference or conjecture, your, your evidence can also be confounded. You may mix things that you think are true or you assume to be true. And here's maybe the most important part of all, a conclusion based on inference or assumption can appear logical. I mean, how many very smart televangelists or, or theologians have made some very impressive arguments based on their opinion? And how many of us are persuaded by them? We're not saying that they're not logical. They can be very logical, but if they're not based on fact, then we can't say that they're true. And that's why I am relying solely on the Holy Scriptures today for what I'm about to talk about. <clears throat> okay, and again, yes, this beware statement. This is a very good one. You walk into a Christian bookstore, you surf the internet, many, many, many books and videos and study guides and websites are all based on this type of reasoning, this type of inductive opinion-based reasoning. We're not going to do that today. okay? So we're going to attack this like a scientist. And uh, you know, I'm a scientist. I, I feel like this is the best way for me to understand empirically the conclusions I'm trying to draw. I'm going to draw a model. <clears throat> Now, a scientist makes models all the time. Why do they do that? Because it's a way for him or her to be able to construct an explanation for the evidence that they're seeing so they can understand something. Um, what What does the center of the Earth look like? How do black holes operate? What does an atom look like? These are all things that we can't measure directly, but if we study the physical world and we collect evidence, we can make a model for how we think they work. And a model is great because then you can use it to test your ideas. Make a model, and then you go and look at the evidence, or, or more evidence. If the evidence fits with your model, you, you keep your model. Your model is sound. But if the evidence contradicts your model, now it's your model that needs to change. Not the universe. You might need to tweak your model, you might need to reject your model, but at least it gives you some starting point, and that's what we're going to do today. <coughs> um, <laughs> We're gonna use all of the evidence in the Bible to test our model. Not just the three verses that we think supports our theory. We're gonna use it all. And we're gonna let the dice roll and we're gonna see what we find. And, and our conclusions, our truth that we find may hurt us. They may not be what we expected. They may challenge us in our, in our previous beliefs. But I promise that I'm going to construct a model that is based on all of the evidence, and it is what it is. I'm also constructing a model that I call as general. Now, a general model says this, in a majority of cases, it tends to be that the universe acts in a certain way, okay? That's a general model. The analogy here is the statement I will make that says, exercise is good for your health. In general, exercise is good for your health. It improves uh, uh, the vital statistics and the physiology of your body. You can live longer, you can feel better. However, in some cases, either due to preexisting uh, injury or illness or age, exercise can be bad for you. But in majority of cases, it tends to be good for you. That's the general model we're constructing here. That in general, this is what the Bible and its, and its preponderance of evidence is suggesting. <clears throat> we're also gonna use Occam's razor. Who has heard of Occam's razor before? Occam's razor says the simplest explanation tends to be the correct explanation and yes in some cases you can construct very elaborate complex explanations for how things work but in general the simplest explanation is the the one that usually is right or true or or can best explain the evidence. That's the one that we're going to stick to today and we're going to stick to the least number of assumptions to support our model. The more assumptions means the more error in your model, and the more likely that it's wrong. And finally, we're going to do what all scientists should do, tend to do, is that our conclusions will be based on consensus. The sum total of evidence will lead us to a conclusion that we will have at the end. It will be based on patterns, it will be based on the weight or the, the amount of data. It will not be based on edge cases. I say that again. Our conclusions will not be based on edge cases, okay? So, very serious, right? It's all good. Let's go ahead and start. Are there any questions as we prepare here to get into the word? Okay. Let's make a model. Woo! This is fun. How many weeks is this going
1: to be? In? This is a good question. <laughs> See, like so, yeah, I don't answer it. It's like a lot to solve
0: it's a lot to solve, and I've been solving it for 46 years, my friend, and I don't know that we'll do it today, and it's a great point. What I'm going to start here today is the beginning. I hope that this will lead all of us to probably a lifetime pursuit of what truth is. What is, what is the Bible saying? We won't solve it today. Here's my model. i <coughs> start with. God calls people. <coughs> okay. It's temporal meaning there is cause and effect there is a there's a a timeline it starts with God calling people people believe okay and if they believe it's if then God saves them okay now I haven't necessarily defined all of these terms and I will I'm just saying and I'm drawing it funny because, you know, I don't want to have to keep erasing. I kind of know where this is going. If I were starting from the beginning, I wouldn't know where this is going. So you can just assume this is, this is my starting point. This is my model. Let's define these things. <clears throat> the first definition is what is the problem we're trying to solve? And I think the problem the entire Bible is trying to solve is that of sin. And we can't, we can't say what the answer is unless we define what the problem is. Part of what I'm going to do today is talk about the original Greek that the New Testament was written in, that the Greek Old Testament was written in, and was based on the Hebrew. The reason I'm doing this is because when we get to the edge cases for how people have interpreted some of Paul's statements, it's unfortunate, but a lot of people rely on the imperfect English translation of those statements, and we're not going to do that. We're gonna go right to what the author said in the beginning, the original evidence. And Paul wrote in Greek, so we're gonna use the Greek to help define our problems and our solutions here. <clears throat> what is sin? Sin, in the Greek, is hamartia. That's the noun, hamartano is the, is the verb. And, and the verb literally means to miss the mark. It kind of calls back to the day when uh, an athlete would have a javelin and he would throw it at a target. And if that javelin missed the target, that's the origin of this, this concept called hamartia. <clears throat> you've missed the mark, and thus you've failed. Now, that failing, of course, has been transmuted, evolved, the concept of it into what we call sin, which the Bible would equate with wickedness, okay? <clears throat> now, what is sin? We're not gonna necessarily go through each and every Bible verse, and I just wanted to show you here today that the reason this is so big is because I've tried to be as thorough as possible with all of the cases, all of the buckets. This is certainly not going to be every single Bible verse that corresponds to each one of these explanations. It's just to give you a flavor for each of the categories. And and so in your reading and your estimation, please continue to investigate the Bible. These are not the only places where these are talked about. These are just kind of the big cases. Well, the first big case is that sin is rebellion against God. And it's not just of God, it's, it's of all people. All people have rebelled. It's transgression of the law of God. It separates us from God. A lot of us know these. Uh, it results in spiritual and physical death. It began with Lucifer. His other name is Satan or the serpent, the devil. And it entered the world through Adam. And the capacity for sin, not sin itself, but the capacity to sin has been passed down to every generation since. Okay, we'll pause there. Any questions? Probably the least controversial part we'll talk about today. That's our starting point. So that's the problem. What's the solution? Let's start with the beginning. What do I mean by God calls people? Let's see what the Bible says about that. Now again, I know I promised predestination, we'll get there. The problem is that there's a lot of concepts that are kind of interwoven with predestination that include God's calling, God's elect, God's choosing, God's foreknowledge, and then, of course, this idea of predestination. Because they're all kind of interwoven, we need to separate them all out, and that's why I'm going through them step by step. What does calling mean? well this is this is a good one because in the new testament at least calling tends to be the same word the same greek word over and over and it's uh uh, klesis or kaleo it literally means what you think it means it means to call or someone summon someone it's an invitation so what is god's calling so literally i sat down with my interlinear uh translation and i went through the entire new testament to find all of the places in which the word clasis or kaleo or the concept of kaleo is found and this is what i found god's calling can mean holiness it's a prize and a goal to be achieved it's hope it's a blessing it's also something that can shame the wise and the strong so right off the bat we see what the calling is or what it results in but what can it be what is god's calling well, as it turns out, that's also complex. God's calling can be general to groups, and we see this in the <coughs> Old Testament, what God calls his chosen people. Who are his chosen people?
2: Israelites.
0: The Israelites. It happens in the New Testament. Who are God's so-called chosen people in the New Testament? Christians. You're looking at it, Christians. Okay. So it's general to groups, but it can also be specific to individuals. And... Many of the famous people, uh, prophets, leaders of the Old Testament, there are specific passages in which those authors said, I was specifically called by God to do a certain task. So people like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Abraham. In the New Testament, Paul. God calls and draws people to him and fellowship with Jesus. Okay, so he's calling people. We can see this. So this, this means a lot of different things. It can be general. It can be specific. It can be certain people. It can be groups. And it can be for different reasons. He calls people to glorify him and his excellence and Jesus. Here's a good one. No one can come to Jesus unless God calls or draws them. This is really good because this then kind of supports this idea that this step has to come first before this step. So our model, we're not just verifying the contents, we're verifying the order. And here we go. We're getting a lot of good evidence here for this order so far, or at least the first two. Some people are called for specific purposes and God assigns a lifestyle to them. Again, this gets back to the prophets. Jeremiah is a really good example of that. <laughs> the weeping prophet. He didn't really want to do it, but God called him to do it And time and again. Jonah is another example. I don't want to go to Nineveh. You're going to Nineveh. I don't want to go, go to Nineveh. He goes in the fish. Okay, I'll go. (laughs) Right? He didn't force him, he called him to do it. God's calling, this is a really good one, is irrevocable. Once God does this, there's no going back. This is a good way to say this arrow never gets deleted. Ever. Ah, who is God calling? The weak and the foolish. How many of us in here call ourselves weak and foolish? I know I do. (laughs) Right? All things work together for good for the people who love God and are called according to his purpose. So he has a purpose. There's a reason for this. It's not just random. Without calling, no one understands or seeks God. This is a really good one. This says that this has to happen this way. Not just that this does happen. It has to happen. This is a really good one, too. We can pray for God to call others. What? I can pray for this, and God will do it. The possibility of salvation is promised to everyone God calls to himself. Let me read that again to you. The possibility of salvation is promised to everyone. Those are the words of Acts. God calls to himself. Matthew says God calls all people who are weary and burdened. That's Jesus' words himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. How many people are weary and burdened? God invites, or Jesus, in fact, everyone who is thirsty, anyone who is thirsty may come to me for living water. How many people know the story of the wedding invitation in Matthew? There's a Matthew 22 is quintessential here, it's, it's paramount. Jesus tells the parable of a wealthy man who invites people to his house, <clears throat> very specific people who he wants to come to his home for a wedding. None of them come. He called them, they didn't come. The uh, parable or parallel here is that refers to the Jewish nation, at least that's what um, Jesus was getting at. Because they didn't come, he then went out, had his, his servants go out on the street and call anyone anyone who wanted to come to this wedding could come, and they did. And this is the Gentiles. This is you and me. But he makes a very explicit point in verse 14. Although many are called, few are chosen. So now we see that this seems to encompass everyone, but not everyone is going to end up being saved in the end. That is very key here. This is very key. And again in John, Jesus will draw all men to himself. So now... (coughs) Not only do we have support for this model, I'm going to to update it. God doesn't just call people. Who does he call? Everyone. You have the evidence right here in your Bible. To some degree, every single person on this earth is called. So I put a summary here just so we can, as we go through each piece, we know where we stand. God's calling is comprehensive. It is complex, meaning there's different kinds of calling for different people. It is both general to groups and specific to individuals, but it is required for salvation and human understanding, and it must precede human reciprocation to be effective. Boom. Huge. Huge. Yes. God must call people for them to understand and reciprocate so that they can choose to follow him. That's the only way that they can be saved. Questions? Disagreements? You can disagree with me. Uh, you know. But he called Paul specifically, and the, the
1: apostles called call them specifically. Yep. Mm-hmm. He calls everybody. He wants yes. everybody to be saved. But exactly. Not everybody will. And I heard it said, I don't know, you know, <clears throat> the God that God doesn't send us to hell. We
0: send ourselves to hell if we don't believe. I heard that statement. What a great segue, Lorna, uh, for part two. Yep, we'll get to oh, that. Sorry. No, that's great, sweetheart. Uh-huh. <laughs> we good? Let's go to step two. Okay, Human faith and free will. Now we need to kind of validate this piece that people have to believe and what we mean by that. So let's go ahead. What does salvation require? Well, I put in here a list of these are kind of the steps that the New Testament outlines for a person to be saved. It requires first hearing the gospel. This is paramount. Hearing the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus. That Jesus is in fact the Messiah predicted by the Old Testament scriptures who will be a uh, propitiation or a uh, a substitution for our sin. And if we believe in him, we can have eternal life. That's the gospel, short and sweet. But it also includes this act here of repenting of sins. You have to repent of your sins for salvation to be considered for you. We'll talk about what repenting is in a minute. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. This is right out of the Bible, folks. Believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, and if possible, we are commanded to be baptized in water. But what is faith? I'm going to tell you right now, faith is the most misunderstood concept in the entire Bible. So I'm going to go back to the Greek. What is the Greek word for faith? Well, the Greek word for faith tends to almost always be this word pistis. Uh, The verb is pisteo. It literally means someone who is persuaded. It comes from the root verb, uh, pytho, which means to persuade or entrust. So literally, someone who has faith means, literally, they are persuaded about something. And to give faith to someone means to persuade them. It's not rocket science, and it's not complicated. And a lot of Calvinist uh, people who, who cling to predestination will say, no, no, God gives you faith. It's some kind of magical object that he just forces upon you, and then you can say you believe. That's not what the Greek is saying here, folks. It originates from God in the sense that he persuades us. So yes, it starts with God. It starts with anyone who's trying to convince you of something, it starts with them because they're trying to persuade you about something. And there's numerous biblical verses there that support that. It's also produced in you. How do you produce faith? Because you're persuaded. Think about any argument that someone has tried to make with you, any topic whatsoever. They're trying to convince you that they're right. They have to convince you. It starts with them. But you're only going to believe if you are persuaded by it. And that is exactly what the Greek here is trying to get at. Now, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. The translation in the Greek there means he who is persuaded by the evidence that the Son is who he says he is has eternal life. That is the Greek. Here's a good one. And this is a one that Calvinists cling to too. It can be assigned in greater proportions from God all that means folks is it's not magic it's not a gift that arrives under your under your tree at Christmas it just means he further persuades us think about when Jesus is healing the blind man the one that took twice scholars universally agree Jesus is trying to persuade him that he can do what he says he can do he starts um, by giving the guy partial sight Because the man doesn't seem to truly believe that Jesus can do what he says he can do. But once he gives him partial sight, the man seems to respond by saying, Yes, I think you are who I think you are. And what happens? He then gets his entire sight back. There are numerous cases here of people in the New Testament where their faith, meaning Jesus can continue to persuade them, that grows their faith. It's not magic. Let's add that. That's an excellent point, Roger. Gideon's fleece. Gideon, you know, we call it testing God. Again, that's probably a very bad translation there as well. It's saying, God, I want you to convince me and God will. And this I get at for our application here is, if you ask God to prove who he is, he will. Ask God to persuade you, he will persuade you. Sometimes it's, you know, you might think, oh no, it's a negative way, it's not true at all. God can intend to make us faithful people, but we can still reject him. Here's a really good one. We may not be persuaded. I want us to read Jeremiah 2.21. Who can read that for me?
2: But I planted you as a special vine, as a very good seed. How then did you turn into a wild vine that grows bad fruit?
0: So, and in some translations here, you'll say um, a vine of faith. Um, How many people have a vine of faith in their translation? Who's there? Okay, my NIV NIV had it. I think that gets at this idea that um, God can intend for you to believe, but that doesn't mean he's going to force it on you. Okay?
2: He doesn't force.
0: Exactly. And we'll get to that. Yep. Sir? Your note this starts with
2: allotted on the second point. Yes. Does that say more
0: than others? Let me see. Yes. Sorry, that's my bad handwriting. Yes, allotted equals some are persuaded more than others. (coughs) It is impossible to please God without faith. So, let's read Hebrews 11.6. Who would like to read that for us? And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Excellent. So, God calls you. People have to believe, they have to believe for him to be pleased. Here's another one. Testing proves our faith is real. Is it still going? It is now. Okay. We can, we can edit it, so it's okay. Um, here's a good one. Some of us say we don't like this part. <laughs> but testing proves our faith is real, and, and James says this. Testing proves that we are persuaded. Are we really persuaded that he is who he says he is? And I've added this and this probably needs to be taken out uh, to a different section but righteousness is kind of the focus here righteousness itself needs to be regularly exercised so we don't become complacent okay what is repentance and, and I'm kind of racing a little bit here we'll, we'll have some time here to, to talk a little more I just want to get through a little bit more here repentance is a really good one we said it's vital you have to repent in order to be considered for salvation what is repentance just transformation. Literally the Greek metanoia or the verb metanoeo means you're transformed. This is what metatarsal means. It means the thing that comes after. Your metatarsal is the bone that comes after your tarsal. It's the same analogy in metanoeo. It's the actions and the and the thoughts that happen after you have changed your thinking. Okay. In the Christian community it's equated with confessing your sins and changing um, your actions why do we repent so sins can be wiped out it follows God's rebuke so God rebukes you and then you repent and it results in God pouring out his thoughts to you and making his teachings known to you Wow results in producing fruit Calling sinners to repentance was the focus, one of the main focuses of Jesus' ministry. It's commanded by Jesus. It's not asked. It's commanded in order to prepare for what we call the new kingdom. It's commanded by Peter. God takes no pleasure. This is a good one. God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone and commands all people to repent and live. Let's read that Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel 18, 30 to 32. Nathan, you want to grab that since you got the mic over there? Thanks, buddy.
2: <laughs> Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Every one according to his ways declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. So is that saying, I don't have
0: any desire to punish anyone except the people I condemn to hell? No. That statement is very clear. He doesn't want anyone to be condemned. Let's read the next one. God is patient and doesn't want anyone to perish. This is the New Testament. And, Buddy, can you uh, read 2 Peter 3.9 as well? Thanks. But he wants everyone to come to repentance.
2: The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slow in this, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is huge. And he commands
0: uh, everyone, if we go on to Acts, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Not just the people he's chosen to repent. This is is a really important distinction that we have to make here. And without repentance, people store up God's wrath and you will perish. So that's the result. And what happens when you repent? It results in great rejoicing in heaven when sinners repent. Another key here is that It refers to uh, people who elect to choose to follow God themselves. So election, which we'll get into in a moment here, goes both ways. Luke refers to people who elect to choose or follow God. Choose, not forced. And God's calling is made sure by our actions. Second, That can't be made more clear there. This step, we are finding solid evidence for here.
2: that?
0: yes. God's calling is made sure by our actions. Not the things that have been forced upon us, but by the things that we choose. <clears throat> Those who follow Jesus must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. God's kindness, righteousness, and severity are influenced by our choices. Now the biggest section of all I have, human's free will. Literally the entire Bible is an example of free will. <laughs> And we're not going to go through each and every example here. Um, I do want to do one um, from the very beginning in Genesis. Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. Who would like to read that for me? Okay, thanks, Carrie. Uh, I think it's 22 to 24. Yes, ma'am.
2: Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life
0: if God didn't want man to eat from the tree of life and he was controlling man like a robot he would have said Adam don't touch that tree okay I will not touch that tree right and it goes off that's not what happens here God is so concerned that man will choose to eat from the tree of life Something that God, and it sounds like the, the triune trinity is so concerned about, they actually kick him out physically and put a guard to the, the Garden of Eden in place. We can't do it. Folks, there is nothing here that says God forced him to not choose to eat the tree of, of life's fruit. It was man's choice. There's numerous others. Moses disobeying God and striking the rock. Moses petitioning God not to destroy the Hebrews. In fact, it looks like free will goes both ways. God has free will and we have free will. And in some cases, people have petitioned God to change his mind. Moses petitioned him not to destroy the Hebrews after they made the golden calf. Um, Hezekiah petitioned petitioned God to give him more life. uh, And so on and so forth. Here's, an, here's another good one. God regretted that he made humans. Look, I'm sorry if that strikes you. <laughs> it's harsh. This is what happens when the wickedness of man became so great, he destroyed the world in flood. God regretted it. Why? If God was controlling man like a puppet, why would he regret this? He would have just told man, stop sinning. But he didn't. Abraham pleads for God to save Sodom. Sodom. If it was God's destiny to destroy it, every single man, woman, and child, including Lot, he would have done it. But, God, but Abraham, in his free will, petitioned God to change his mind. This is huge, people. Mary petitions Jesus to perform the miracle at Cana. We all know this one. Turn the water into wine. Help, help us. And he's like, no, I don't want to do it. She's like, please help us. He's like, okay. <laughs> You're my mom. She had free will and he had free will. Ezekiel, this is a good one, pleads for God to change his mind about the kind of food and how he would cook it. We all know this one. It's a gross one. You could look that one up. God changes his mind. This is a good one. Jacob wrestled with the angel or God and prevailed. And prevailed. Those are the words of the Hebrew. He prevailed. Folks, if God was controlling Israel or Jacob like a puppet, how could he have prevailed? He paid for it. <laughs> he paid for it, in a good way and bad way. Jonah said, "Don't destroy Nineveh." God relented. Well, that's true. That's true. He wanted it destroyed, but then the Ninevites—and uh, thank you for that clarification—the Ninevites, the Ninevites changed their minds, and so God changed His. Look, goes on and on and on, and we can go all through this. Jesus acknowledges human free will. Humans are called by God to be free, <clears throat> so on and so forth. Look, I, we can go all the way through this. Mountain of evidence that suggests humans have free choice, even when it's a way that God doesn't want them to act. So now, I'm going to change my model a little bit, just to kind of augment it. I'll <clears throat> say it this way. i going to say... Some people are persuaded and believe. Is that what I kind of wrote out there? And I'll say reciprocate, meaning in a fancy way, they respond. It's of their own free will. Okay, we'll just save it for there. And then God saves them. Any questions or comments so far? Then God saves them. Soteria or sodzo is the Greek. It means literally to save or rescue. It means in a, in a physical sense to save or help someone, but it also is then applied in a religious sense. Salvation is the human and spiritual, physical deliverance from God's wrathful judgment. It results in irreversible eternal spiritual physical life, spiritual and physical life, equated with entering the kingdom of God. Here is the key verses: it's only possible from God. It is impossible without God and granted through Jesus alone. The ultimate power to save or condemn us lies with God alone. So it has to be with God, not us. And available to all people. Let me read that again Acts 13 47. It is all people, it may bring salvation to all people and the whole world, 1 John 2 2. Not just the people that God chose beforehand. It is available to everyone, so long as they reciprocate. God chooses to save all people who believe in him, or in, of course, the right way, who are persuaded by Jesus. It is unmerited gift of God and not earned by works. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 is one of the most misunderstood English translations of God's gift. The Greek here, and this is a technical way of saying it, When Paul says, and this is not the result of works, this is the gift of God, he's referring to this meaning salvation, not God gave you faith. So that's his way of saying, well, I put money in your bank and that's how you can now pay it back. No, he didn't force faith on you. It's made possible through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Often and demanded, but not always associated with water baptism. God chooses the poor who love him to be rich in faith and the heirs of his kingdom. He can speak out against people, but still remember you, yearn for you, and he can still have mercy on you. This is Jeremiah. This happens a lot in Jeremiah. Associated with the continuous demonstration of salvation and faith or fruit in Jesus beyond simple acknowledgement. This is a key here. Even the demons acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, but they don't truly believe. They haven't reciprocated. They know who he is, right? And just saying, I know your, your God is not enough. <clears throat> no. And then, of course, we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, okay? And, and again, this is kind of a resource for you as well. We can kind of go through all of this. Um, I think this is a good point too. God has a threshold where his patience and mercy are exhausted. He has a limit. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God will judge sinners, both living and dead, and he will punish the lawless offenders on Judgment Day, but he is not cruel. And this is key Lamentations, and does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. He's not ever trying to punish someone just because he wants to. So now we can add to our model. Let's do this. We say, people are persuaded, but some reject him. Not persuaded. <clears throat> and what is in store for them spiritual death any questions or concerns so far before we get into the really good stuff Do mm-hmm. We say I I really like that, Roger. I'm willing to, you know, this is all together here. I'm going to say many people, nay, most. Yeah, agree. Cool. Well, you go back to like the four soils and you look at Mm -hmm. what percent of the soil actually
1: ate the fruit, and if if you just break it up and divide it, it's 25%. That's it, 25%. Yep. Listen. At most,
0: most. yeah. That means 75% Mm -hmm.
1: are not, and maybe at first. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. This is a little different than our usual, and I know that we're kind of racing through this, um, but I think it's important to get this out. Um, This is our model, and, and so far we have support from a huge number. Of verses in the Bible that this is the right model okay so now we're gonna get into the edge cases the edge cases where either through the subject matter or through the word that's used itself to describe a certain concept there's a much fewer number of cases first one is God's foreknowledge now we're gonna start to get into this whole thing God's foreknowledge, Prognosco means literally something either known beforehand or prepared beforehand, um, or, or already having known something for a long time. It only includes uh, happens seven times in the New Testament. <clears throat> Doesn't mean it's not true. I'm just saying its preponderance is much less. It refers to very many different things. It can refer to people who knew Paul was a Pharisee. Okay, so that's one of the seven. refer to the Jews as a group who are God's people who he foreknew and, quote, won't reject. Can refer to Jesus, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world to be the Redeemer, and who was foreknown to be put to death even though evil uh, rulers conspired to kill Christ, his death was something that God had already decided would happen. I know, as God, there's going to be my son, he is going to be the Redeemer, He will do things that will make people want to kill him, and then they will eventually kill him. I know that's going to happen. It doesn't say foreknowledge itself does not say that there was a cause and effect. It just means that he knew it was going to happen. Yeah, there you go. He knows. He knows. The Hebrew in the Old Testament is yada to know. I don't. You know, Hebrew is not my uh, forte as much as Greek, uh, but it still says the same things. God knows all the days ordained for us. Knows before one of them came to be. Okay, so he can see the future. I think, you know, omniscient, can see the future, timeless, we get it. He knows our thoughts and words before they're expressed. Nothing in the future is hidden from his eyes. He promises to bless future peoples through Abraham and Jesus. So he says, I already know. Abraham and Jesus are going to be vessels for my blessing, my mercy. Later, in the future. And the prophets, this is, this is the best one of all the foreknowledge, the prophets were given foreknowledge of future events. The prophets didn't cause those events. The, the concept of foreknowledge does not imply causation here. It just implies knowing. You know the end of the movie, that's the, kind of the old you know, trope. I've seen the whole movie, I know how it's going to happen, I don't really like it, um, <clears throat> but I know it. That's foreknowledge. So So far, the concept of foreknowledge Our model is still good. Uh, We might just add something here that says, you know, this whole thing, put a big eye, (laughs) right? God's big eye. He already knows. he can see the whole thing. But I don't think that our model needs to be changed here. Good so far? Edge case number two, God can harden your heart. Ooh, now we're getting into some real good stuff here. Well, he can harden hearts, yes, but have you actually read the scripture about where it talks about that? There's only 14 times of all of scripture that God, the scripture refer to God hardening someone's heart. Half of those are the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And if you look at when God says he is hardening their hearts, it turns out it is already after Pharaoh has decided to be a jerk to the Israelites. Pharaoh, and in fact, it even says, Pharaoh already hardened his own heart before the Lord finally took action against him. Refers to groups like the Canaanites, sworn enemies of God, who finally God hardened their hearts, but only after a long track record of freely choosing their own wickedness and hardness towards him. The Hivites, same, same issue, pagan group, already enemies. At one point, even the Israelites, he says he's going to harden their hearts. But God eventually relents. This is really good too. He eventually relents. In fact, even Romans, Paul says, a second time, God has decided to harden the hearts of the Israelites in response to the gospel, but he promises their salvation once, quote, the full number of Gentiles has come in. And again, the wicked who have already chosen to reject God, and, and, and so he blinds their eyes. Cause and effect. So now we can add to our model. This is a really good one. We're going to add it right here. God hardens their hearts, then God can relent or spiritual death and guess what if he relents we get to go all the way back again and start over this is biblical cause and effect there's support for this order he didn't harden their hearts before they weren't persuaded he didn't harden their hearts at the beginning he did it after they rejected him any questions about that Many, right? Many. God's chosen and elect. This is edge case number three. Here's we're getting real close now. Eklemai or eklektos, eklege. It just means to select, to make a choice. It is what it sounds like, to choose. But election does not inherently mean God's predefined choosing for salvation. Sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. For instance, it's used to describe God selecting Saul to be king of the Israelites. And of course, we know that even though God chose Saul for a task, Saul, in his actions, he was not persuaded. And so Saul failed. And it led to his death and the death of his sons. It can mean a subset of people who are, quote, already called by God, who respond to the gospel message and are subsequently saved. These verses of Matthew are critical to this model. People who are already called, called by God, and subsequently saved, God saves them. He chooses them, chooses them there. They're chosen there. This is is key. It can refer to groups, and this is a big one. You might not think this is a big deal. It actually is really important. It can refer to groups like aliens, uh, people who are are believers in Christ from the New Testament, uh, scattered throughout the empire, can also refer to a chosen race. Again, the Jews are God's chosen people. Was every Jew saved? Was every Jew righteous? Your group can encompass people that God has planned to be his vessels of salvation, but there can be individuals who came nowhere close. Just like the Christian community. In the New Testament is referred to as a group of people who God has chosen as his vessels of salvation but I guarantee you there's plenty of people who say Jesus Jesus and they're not saved God saved who had hope for eternal life a group of people in contrast to the Jews who had found salvation in God that's Christians here's the other thing every time Paul refers to you are the chosen ones of God. Guess who he's talking to? Christians. Paul always addresses his letters to Christians who are already believers. It's kind of like saying, I, I get a group of people together and I say, Congratulations, you are the elect of God. Okay? Well, yes, you are as a group. I don't know how many of you have actually done this. I'm just saying, in general, the average is you are a group of people who seem to be chosen by God. Here's another one. I can get a whole group of people together. It can be Christians. Let's say it's Christians. And I say, congratulations, you are the ones who are called by God. Now in your brain, if you hear that, what's the first thing you think? Oh. He just said that me and my brothers are all called by God. That must mean that people who are not Christians are not called by God. But that is another error. That's another error. Just because you, I say Roger, you have been called by God does not mean other people haven't.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah,
0: They can. Your, your heart can get hard. Faithful Christians in the church of Colossia, Faithful Christian brothers in the church of Thessalonica. People for whom Paul endured many trials. Time and time again, Paul is referring to people who have already taken this step of believing. And it says in the scriptures, you have already accepted who Jesus is, and you've been saved because of it. Believers who Paul suffers for so they can receive salvation. It goes on and on. can refer to select missionaries, ministers, or deacons. So now we see just like calling, it can mean many different things. It can mean the selection of Jesus' disciples. Specific people for specific tasks can mean choosing Peter to share the gospel, choosing the weak and the foolish, choosing the poor to be rich in faith, selecting a place of honor at the dinner table. On and on and on. What does it mean? Some total here is God's choosing or election can mean different things. But in general, every time someone talks about a specific person who is chosen by God or elected, it means someone who has already taken this step. This is key, folks. You have to be very careful about what the Bible is actually saying. At no time does it say someone was was elected here before they believed. It never says that. Yep. We yep.
2: Uh, everybody We have to accept before we are yep. chosen. For. Got it. There's a passage you reference here in 2 Timothy 2.10. It says, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Mm-hmm.
0: And the whole passage of that Timothy passage is talking to believers. It's talking to believers. And in fact, if you read that whole passage, you realize it's saying, you were all people that chose God. I want you to continue in this faith. Remember, we said back here a few passages here that righteousness, let me go find the passage here. Because this is key, and it's a good point. Righteousness needs to be regularly exercised so we don't become complacent, Romans 12. The elects. Now, in the case of Paul, who is he talking to? He's talking to these people. So you have to be very careful when you think that election happened. Right now, Paul, in that passage, is referring to, you are the elect, and I'm going to continue to do what I do so that I know that you're elect. But it says nothing about that God elected them before any of this. It doesn't say that. So we have to be very careful here okay edge case number four predestination we made it pro matzo in greek to prepare beforehand only two times in the entire new testament do we have this word so we are getting to the edge case of the edge cases both plural both times it's used it means it's referring to groups either to works or vessels or good works Prohorizo means to to kind of appoint beforehand, decide beforehand, to predetermine. It's always plural as well, only six times in the New Testament. It refers to the plans God has planned in advance, a secret and hidden wisdom. And the others are the ones at the end that we'll talk about in a minute. Yada in Hebrew means some very special people's work. Work itself is preordained before birth through God's foreknowledge of their lives. But it does not say that the Bible specifically saved them before they chose to save them. In fact, if you look up Jeremiah, Paul, Abraham here, all three of those references to God pro-horizoing or yadahing them, predetermining their work on earth as, as prophets, as leaders of God, still goes on to say, at some point they had to believe in God themselves. They may have been preordained for certain roles But at some point, they had to be persuaded and reciprocate. That's biblical. Also, uh, John the Baptist. Yes. Let's add that. John the Baptist. Yep. All the works of the Lord are for those who obey him. And the wicked are preordained for for the evil day. The wicked who have already rejected God... You, you've got to be careful of your concepts here. God has already decided, preordained, that people who are conformed in the image of Christ will be saved, and people who reject him will be judged. That is what he has preordained here. Not individuals before they're born. Yeah.
1: Predestination with the mm. point with the purpose. Yep.
0: Exactly, and getting back to Nathan's point, or what he was, what he was, uh, you know, challenging us on, is to say, if God has already decided you're going to be damned to all to, for all eternity, <clears throat> then why would Paul need to continue to work to make sure that you are saved or damned? He would have already decided it, and this is exactly the point, Steve, which is the vessels in this case are a community; it's a group. When we talk about predestination it almost always talks about groups. You grew up in the Christian community, you had an advantage. You grew up as a Jew, you had an advantage. But at some point, you're going to choose whether you are part of that or not. Okay. Refers to judgment and condemnation of people who, quote, reject Jesus. Again, we can't escape it. When the words prohorizo or prognosko or, or um, uh, you know, predestination are used here, it's always those who, quote, have already rejected him or have already accepted him. Refers to those, and this is, this is a big one, who already believe, who are, quote, living stones in Jesus, who was the cornerstone and a stumbling block for those who already disbelieve and stumble because they are disobedient and are thus now appointed and destined to doom because of their disobedience. I called you. You rejected me. Now you are destined for spiritual death already decided it but it came after you weren't persuaded and this now leads us to and again I think you could say with with pretty good certainty that the vast majority of evidence that we are seeing here supports this model in some way as a general model still accepting there could be edge cases there could be special circumstances but in general it looks like this is the model cause and effect now we get to what are essentially the three last, most controversial statements in the entire Bible. Okay? And again, let, you know, let me draw this. What is, what is, you, know, you see the scales of justice, uh, right? Uh, like the courts. You have this scale, and you weigh the evidence, right? And you have this mountain of evidence supporting our model here. okay with maybe one or two edge cases, and I'll grant you that, so far, that maybe are a little more ambiguous. You say, well, wait, I don't know. Is he talking about before or after? I get it, that's fine. Here's support of our model, here's the rejection. Now we get to the three last edge cases, which are used 99.9% of the time by people who say, you have no choice, God has already decided, you are damned, no matter what you think or do. And we're talking about it because we're gonna talk about Romans 8 next week. Romans eight twenty nine. for those God foreknew, he also predestined, appointed, or, or ordained to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he preordained, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Romans 9, 22 to 23, Ephesians 1, 4 to 11. Here's the issue you now have a preponderance of evidence that this is the model. This is how it works. You have three statements, all by Paul, that you can say, okay, at first blush, it seems to be very ambiguous. It seems to be saying God has already decided who is saved and who isn't, and it doesn't really matter what you think or do. Okay? So here's what I'm saying. You know, and here's some of the arguments. Some claim that God chooses to save or condemn people in the absence of faith. Others say that he intends to save Uh, you know, know, he calls people he intends to save and doesn't call the others. The most extreme is that he's already decided who's going to be saved or not, and you're just a big robot. Here's what I'm saying. If you are going to do this empirically, then what you have to do is take every one of these claims, which is not specifically in the Bible, by the way. None of the claims I've just read to you are specifically said in the Old or New Testament. They are what people assume to be true, and we already know what we think about assumptions. Fine we say a model can make predictions, then if I assume that it's saying that no one has free will or choice, guess what? (laughs) That is contradicted by 99% of the Bible. Which might be true. Look, don't get me wrong, maybe it is true, but if it is true, then we have to now deal with the 99% of the Bible that says the opposite. We have to. Either it's wrong, and I can't believe that's true, or somehow God has been so deceptive in the 99% that now we've got to completely reject it and start over
2: He's not deceptive.
0: and that's what I again the evidence says that's true Lauren I agree with that what about this one you are forcibly saved without faith again that statement is not specifically in the Bible it contradicts all of the evidence that we've talked about and it is rejected by our model so it could be true but the evidence suggests otherwise could also say that only the saved are called. And this is sometimes where people read these three verses and say, well, only the people who are saved are called, so that's why it works that way. And then, of course, if only they're called, then they can choose. But again, that contradicts several of those statements we just read in the, in the New Testament. Everyone is called. All people are called. Jesus draws all men to him and women. So again, we have to reject that. What about this one? We don't have to evangelize because God has already decided who to save. Well, that's rejected by the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Boom. Period. It's, it's rejected by the entire New Testament. How many people did the, did the disciples and Paul evangelize to? So we're xing that one out. What about this one? Faith is only provided by God. Okay, fine. I accept that this is true, but the, the persuasion, God just gave it to him like an ATM card. So they didn't believe it. God gave it to them. Well, guess what? That also is contradicted by the mountain of evidence in the rest of the Bible. And it makes no sense. If I were going to say that God forces you to believe, I wouldn't use the word pistis in Greek, because that means you're persuaded. I would use the word kreteo. God forced or commanded you to believe. That word is never found in concert with faith and belief. So I'm rejecting that.
1: Do you think sometimes we get Mm, okay. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. Mm. It's a, it a gift. Love it. it but it's, it's more of a steadfastness Love it. that's holding the course. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as the initial faith. Maybe
0: it's kind of like, and it's a good point, maybe it's kind of like once I'm persuaded, then I tend to act on that. I mean, if a person truly is persuaded, he will act as if he's been persuaded. Yes.
1: No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: That's good.
0: Mm-hmm. So maybe this is a great point too, this is not one and done. <laughs> maybe this is this is it takes time hey maybe you can go back and forth look maybe I'm persuaded but maybe something happens in my life which I'm like someone dies close to me or lose my job suddenly maybe I'm not persuaded I dropped down to here ah, but guess what there's a way out maybe God will relent You can pray, God, help me with my faith. Maybe he will continue to say, okay, fine. You saw that as something that shows I don't love you. I will now show you that I do truly love you. You get the chance again to go back.
2: Yeah. So then are you saying that there's a way to go from being persuaded? Because I can't imagine a person who's in a situation where God has hardened their heart. You know, they've hardened their heart against God. God's hardened Mm their heart against him. Um, I can't imagine a situation where they're praying the prayer of, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Mm -hmm. Are you saying
0: Ooh, I would say, you could say that that is. I would, I would say there is support for that, Nathan. The sense that, um, look at the Israelites are a good example of that. Um, look at, look at the leaders of God's nation, of Moses himself or Abraham. How many times did Abraham not do the right thing, not act out of faith? But it doesn't say God hardened his heart. I totally agree with this. I will, I will modify this. So here's here's the summary. I know we're over, but I think it's important. The statements themselves in these three edge case verses, <clears throat> there is no saying when the election or the or the salvation happened. People Im- impute their own belief here about when it happens. If you believe as i do that it could be after the fact this is all good that fits our model that fits the evidence so i would say there's support for that the statements are post-calling god saves those only he knows will reciprocate it only works if the person from their perspective chose god you can say i already know i'm god roger howard is going to accept christ So I've already decided I'm going to save him. You can say that. That's totally legit. That fits everything here. But from Roger's perspective, he had to choose Christ. He had to choose Christ. And if you say that these statements are referring to groups, which there is a mountain of evidence that it's saying you as a group, as a community, as Christians, I've already foreordained, you are going to be saved through Christ, we're good. We're good. So here's your conclusion. Salvation, and and I'm going to draw a conclusion. I'm going to say this is true. Salvation, which is totally in God's hands to grant, is offered to all believers who choose to accept God's calling to undeserved grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period. In addition, God has always planned to grant salvation to specific groups. Jews, which one of these Romans passages is exactly referring to this as vessels of his salvation that would eventually lead to Jesus, And to Christians whose membership includes those individuals who choose to believe in Jesus. And this was always part of the plan, period. That's predestination, folks. It was always part of the plan. Further, God has selected some individuals beforehand to carry out certain tasks or roles, but they must still accept God's calling and be persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah to be saved. And finally, we are commanded to continue to share the gospel with others so they can hear God's calling. And be in a position to accept, reject it. There you go. Final thoughts? You can disagree with me.
1: Thanks for doing this. It's a lot of work great
0: part. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm glad to do it. Uh, yes, it's a lot of work, but I, I feel like this is really important. Um, and so if you uh, continue, we can add to this, I would say, if you come across either versus supporting the model or rejecting it, please tell me. Let's talk about that because we got to figure it out as a group. So thank you so much for coming. Next week, we'll go back to Romans 8 and have a normal class. All right, thank you all.